seems to me, um, I don't know if you would call the man that approached Jesus, I think Jesus is always the main character in the story, so the, the second main character just didn't know what he needed. We sung all these songs this morning, Maeve's special was about that, and these songs we sung are all about our need for Jesus. I don't think the man in our story realized what he needed. Have you ever walked through um, a mall and you passed like maybe the army recruiter's office and you noticed all the incentive posters and slogans on the window, things like sign up today and get $50,000 for college or get a $20,000 signing bonus or join the Navy and see the world or you can fly high with the U.S. Air Force or join the Marines, we're looking for a few good men. Those are great incentives, aren't they? They talk about travel, college, bonuses, pride, and belonging. Each of those slogans appeals to visions of adventure and success and having a sense of pride that you are special in some way. But there's something that isn't mentioned that goes along with being in the military service. You know, if I recall, when we first got involved in the conflict in Afghanistan, or maybe it was Desert Storm, a lot of folks were in the National Guard and the military reserves were called up and deployed. And I remember reading or hearing in the media how unhappy some of those folks were when they found out that they were going to war. I think there might have even been some special emphasis on women who had children, children at home, and and were going to be away from them for a period of time because they were being deployed. And I think a lot of people felt sorry for them. And from the reporting, it seemed that they were feeling sorry for themselves. The military sounded good to those folks when it was about signing bonuses and extra income and money for college, but when it became about going to war, it wasn't such a good idea anymore. Now, I might be wrong, but it seems to me that at its core, the military is about training for war. We always hope it doesn't come to that, but bottom line, that's what it's about. There is the potential, if you're in the military, that you may have to go to war. And with that, there is also a need to count the cost or the sacrifice that may be involved. That can mean being thousands of miles miles from home, from family, for an extended or extended periods of time. It may mean facing the dangers of combat and even the potential of physical harm or even death. Apparently, when some of those folks were confronted with the cost of military service, they were no longer interested in being in the military. I think the man in our scripture account today, the the rich young ruler as we call him, might have had something in common with the reluctant members of the military I've just told you about. Here's a man who comes to Jesus And from the outside, he seems to have everything going for him. He's rich, and a ruler, and a good guy. But he wants more. 
See, that's the desire. I want it all. I desire more. What must I have, or what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, certainly, I think that's a good question. There's nothing wrong with this man wanting eternal life. Who doesn't? But for him, it was a matter of having it all and eternal life too. He knew something was missing in his life and he came to Jesus to find it. He was rich. According to Matthew, he was young. According to Luke, he was a ruler. He had everything that this life could offer, but he also wanted everything the next life could offer as well. So Jesus, in answer to his question, lists for him six commandments, all of which have to do with actions and attitudes toward one's fellow man. I think Jesus knew this man's sincerity. He knew that he had a heart for God, so he asked him, how are you doing in treating others? Perhaps this is because wealth and power can lead to a disregard for the less fortunate or even the ability to take advantage of them. James addresses that in chapter 2 of his, of his book. He talks about you know people coming into worship service and there's a rich man and there's a poor man and, and we ask the, the poor man to move because we want the rich man to have the good seat right down front and the poor man, he can stand at the back or sit on the floor. And then James says in the sixth verse of chapter 2, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? So perhaps that's why Jesus recited this, these commandments to him. Have you followed these commandments? Have you treated others the way they should be treated in spite of the fact that you have wealth and power? And how does the man respond? All of these I have kept since I was a boy. I deserve what I'm asking for. Um, some of you who were cognizant in the 60s might remember this song by Janis Joplin. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches, I must make amends. Worked, worked all, hard all my life, no help from my friends. So, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? I deserve more. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing for dollars is trying to find me. I wait for delivery each day until three. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? I deserve more. And that's what this man was saying, I think. I've met the criteria. I'm a good guy. I think I deserve what I'm asking for. And he was probably hoping Jesus would say something to the effect of, you know, you've done all you need to do. You're good to go. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, one thing you lack 
Ooh. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Probably not what he wanted to hear. I think there were some questions implied in that statement. How much do you love God? How much do you love your neighbor? How much do you love your wealth? Marjorie Holmes writes, Help me not to put too much stock in possessions, Lord. I want things, sure. But life seems to be a continual round of wanting things. From the first toys we fight over as children to our thrilled unwrapping of wedding presents to those we buy in our old age. Our concern is not primarily love and friends and pride in what we do, but things. Sometimes I'm ashamed of how much I want mere possessions. Things for my husband and the house and the children, yes, and things for myself too. And this hunger is enhanced every time I turn on the television or walk through the shopping mall. You know what I'm talking about. All my senses are tormented by the dazzling world of things. Lord, cool these fires of wanting. Help me to realize how futile is this passion for possessions. Because, and this is, this is what strips my values to the bone, one of my best friends died today in the very midst of her possessions. She was in the beautiful home she and her husband worked so hard to achieve. The home that was finally furnished the way she wanted it with the best of everything. She was surrounded by the oriental rugs she was so proud of, the formal French sofas, the painting, the china and glass, the handsome silver service. She had been snatched away while silent, she had been snatched away while silently, almost cruelly, they, the possessions, remain. Lord, I grieve for my friend. My, My heart hurts that she had so little time to enjoy the things she had earned and that meant so much to her. But let me learn something from this loss. The possessions that are meant to enhance life not to become the main focus of life. Help me remember that we come into the world with nothing and we leave with nothing. Don't let me put too much stock in my possessions. Jesus was confronting this man with a question. Do you control your riches or do your riches control you? And we know the answer because he walked away sad. That's what the scripture tells us. Then Jesus makes a statement that is astonishing to his disciples. It's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. What? That's what they're thinking. Then he adds to their shock by saying that in fact, it is harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. The largest animal in that part of the world that they were acquainted with to pass through the smallest possible opening. You've heard, uh, you've probably heard, well, and I think I've said this before, but it'll research on this thing. We've said at times, well, the, the eye of the needle was a description of this kind of small gate that they opened after hours. And then if a camel got down on its knees, 
it could actually get through. So it was difficult, but possible. No. If you look up the word for eye of the needle, it has to do, it, the, the, the root word is so. It's actually talking about a needle. So you've got this little minuscule hole and this picture of a camel trying to go through it. Impossible. And the disciples can't believe their ears. They saw someone who was rich as having the blessing of God on their lives. And if a rich person can't make it to heaven, if they can't be saved, then who in the world can? That's what they're saying. But it seems to me that according to Jesus, riches can be much more of a hindrance than a help when it comes to attaining eternal life. So, in answer to their question, who then can be saved, Jesus says, no one can be saved on their own merit. Or because of how much stuff they have. Or because they do good things. It is, it's impossible for a man to save himself. Only God can save you. By the way, that train of thought that we can earn, we can get to heaven on our own merit, is, it's still really prevalent in the culture we live in. I remember um, our daughter, um, when she was uh, working in Portland, um, she and the dentist she worked for, and I think maybe a couple of other people from their office, went to Honduras to do kind of a, it wasn't affiliated with the church, but it was kind of a, you know, we're going to go to Honduras and we're going to help people out. And so they went to do medical, or uh, dental care for these people. And, um, her dentist that she worked for was, um, well, we would call him a nun. He had no kind of religious affiliation at all. He was, I think, Syrian by birth, but he was not Muslim. He was not Christian. He was, not, he was, he was a nun. And uh, to his chagrin, the driver of the car that took them around to these places where they set up these dental clinics was a verbal Christian. So he'd ask, he'd ask this guy really hard questions. Things like, well, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? And his answer was, well, I think I'll go because I do enough good things to outweigh the bad things. My daughter was kind of laughing at all this because she could just basically see the you know, the sweat. It was uncomfortable for him. But it made him think. But that is a common mode of thinking in the world we live in. I can earn my way to heaven. I'm basically good because all people are basically good. And if you do enough good things to outweigh the bad things, your ticket is stamped. Well... Jesus goes on in this discussion and he talks about the cost. 
I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel. The cost. I give it all. That's the cost. It was a call to sacrifice and surrender and service. See, that's what Jesus was calling the rich young ruler to do. You have to surrender it all to me. Nothing can be more important in your life than me. But he had something we know that was more important in his life than Jesus. That's why he walked away sad. He couldn't let go. And Jesus speaks to this whole idea of of sacrifice, of giving it all in, in Luke chapter 14, verses 26 through 33. And this is from the message. And it reads like this. One day, when large groups of people were walking along with him, Jesus turned and told them, Anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self, can't be my disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder his own cross and follow behind me can't be my disciple. And he goes on to say, Is there anyone here who, planning to build a new house, doesn't first sit down and figure out the cost so you'll know if you can complete it? Counting the cost. If, only, if you only get the foundation laid and then run out of money, you're going to look pretty foolish. Everyone passing by will poke fun at you. They'll say, he started something he can't finish. Or, can you imagine a king going into battle against another king without first deciding whether it is, whether it is possible with his 10,000 troops to face the 20,000 troops of the other? And if he decides he can't, won't he send an emissary and work out a truce. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss them goodbye, you can't be my disciple. And there was something in this man's life that he wasn't willing to kiss goodbye. See, the rich young ruler, in order to deny himself, would have to let go of anything that would hinder him from following Jesus. And there was this huge hindrance in his life. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes, Christ says, give me all. I don't want a certain amount of your time and a certain amount of your money and a certain amount of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires with which you think are innocent, as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. But I want it all. I want it all. So how much 
do we want what Jesus has to offer and how badly maybe do we want to hold on to what we already have? And Peter at this point as he's thinking about all this that Jesus has said speaks up and says, Jesus, we have surrendered it all. We've given up everything to follow you. And at this time, Jesus talks about the payoff. I get it all. See, Jesus responded to Peter because Peter said, you know, we've, we've given up everything. Jesus said to Peter, if you give it all, you will get it all. I mean, really get it all. A hundred times more, Jesus said. And look at the list. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields. Literally? Probably not. But see, the blessings of God are a hundred times better than anything the world can give you. The blessings of God are a hundred times better than anything the world can give you. Thank you. And oh, by the way, Jesus said, with all of that will come persecutions as well. I wish you hadn't added that on to the end. But you know what? There can be blessing in that as well. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, exactly what the rich young ruler wanted. And then Jesus said, and in the age to come, it gets even better. And in the age to come, the greatest blessing of all, eternal life. See, if you're willing to give it all, you can get it all. Just what the rich man who walked away sad was looking for and he missed out on. Could I get those who will be serving us this morning to prepare and come? In these next moments this morning, we will remember together as we partake of communion that it costs Jesus everything to bring us salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of eternal life. And if you will, gentlemen, go ahead and begin distributing the elements. just want to remind you this morning that you need not be a member of our church to partake of communion. Once you receive the elements, please hold them and we will partake together. Love. That's how we show the presence of Christ in the world. We show Christ in our our lives by loving one another. And this little story, I think, comes from um, Chicken Soup for the Soul. It reads like this. When Bonnie's husband, Bob, died very suddenly in January 1994, she received condolences from people she hadn't heard from in years. Letters cards, flowers, calls, visits. 
She was overwhelmed with grief, yet uplifted by this outpouring of love from family, friends, and even mere acquaintances. One message touched her profoundly. She received a letter from her best friend from sixth grade through high school. They had drifted somewhat since graduation, as she had stayed in the hometown and Bonnie had not. But it was the kind of friendship that could quickly resume, even if they lost touch for five or ten years. Her friend's husband, Pete, had died perhaps 20 years ago at a young age, leaving her with deep sorrow and heavy responsibilities, finding a job, raising three young children. So in her letter, she shared an anecdote about Bonnie's mother, now long deceased. She wrote, When Pete died, your dear mother hugged me and said, Trudy, I don't know what to say, so I'll just say, I love you. She closed her letter by repeating my mother's words of so long ago. Bonnie, I don't know what to say to you, so I'll just say, I love you. Bonnie felt she could almost hear her mother speaking to her. What a powerful message of sympathy. How dear of her friend to cherish it all these years and then pass it on to me. I love you. Perfect words. A gift. Bonnie's friend gave a great gift. It was the gift of love. And when we come to communion, we celebrate that same kind of gift. For from the cross, Jesus said very simply to you and I, I love you. I want to share the the words of a song with you this morning entitled, Written in Red. It says, in letters of crimson, God wrote his love on a hillside so long, long ago. For you and for me, Jesus died, and love's greatest story was told. I love you. I love you. That's what Calvary said. I love you, I love you, I love you, written in red. Down through the ages, God wrote his love with the same hands that suffered and bled, giving all that he had to give, a message so easily read. I love you, I love you. That's what Calvary said. I love you. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I love you. I love you. That's what Calvary said. I love you. I love you. I love you, written in red. You know, we practice communion because we are to remember the death of our Lord Jesus. We take the bread to remind us that it was the body of our Savior. It was by the body of our Savior that our salvation came. He died in our place. He became our substitute. We take the cup to remind us that it was by the blood of our Savior that our salvation came. He died for our sins. He became our sacrifice. The Apostle Paul writes, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together.